0: Well, good morning, Grace. Everybody doing okay? Awesome. Well, if you were a fly on the wall in the home I grew up in, my childhood home right outside Bossier City, Louisiana, one of the things you would have heard a lot coming from my house is this common refrain. How many times do I have to say this? Now, I'll do the best impression I can of my father real quick here. Here's how it sounded, right? How many times do I have to tell you to clean your room? How many times are you going to touch that thing I told you not to touch and face the consequences of your foolishness, son? How many times, Robert, please do not leave your dirty underwear in the kitchen, right? (laughs) Okay, good. It's not just me. Safe place here. Okay. Now, um, I haven't lived in my father's home for 20 years and I can still hear that in my head to this day. Now, maybe you've heard that in some context. Maybe you're saying it now you've got kids of your own, your kids are grown and you found yourself in one of these moments where there's a four or a 14 year old wandering around aimlessly in your living room with socks in their hand and you've told them four times, it's time to go put your shoes on. And you walk in there in that moment and say, how many times do I have to say this? How many times? Maybe you've given it out in a work context. Maybe you heard it from a coach growing up. Here's the thing. I'm still hearing it to this day from my wife. It sounds like this, guys. You'll, you'll be able to recognize this. Robert, we talked about this two days ago. Okay? Which is just her kinder, more gentler, more loving way of saying, Robert, how many times did I tell you? No dirty underwear in the kitchen, right? But how many times do I have to say this? is kind of the feel or the emotion of the passage we're going to look at today how many times does somebody really need to hear something before they can internalize the lesson and really learn it, right? Today our passage is taken out of a greater context of Jesus teaching repeatedly over and over and over again, the same kind of idea hoping his disciples will really get it and really understand it because Jesus's time is running short on this earth. It's a limited time window and he's starting to focus in on what's most important. And he's saying, guys, listen, listen here, get in here. You're going to need to hear this. Please, please do not miss this point. And they keep missing the point. And so today's passage is about a group of men who should have seen it coming, right? They should have been picking up on the clues. It's about a leader who is trying to open his disciples' eyes to a new way of seeing the world and giving them chance after chance to really learn this lesson. And ultimately, I think it's a passage laid out for you and I today by God's good grace to ask us to consider, are we missing this same point and finding ourselves in the same place as these disciples? And so if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along today, we're going to be in the book of Matthew, chapter 20. If you don't have your Bibles, not a problem. We'll make sure it's up on the screen for you today. But we're going to be in Matthew, chapter 20, starting in verse 17 in just a few moments. I do think it would benefit us to do a little bit of background work. Real quick, before we read our passage today, I think it's going to be vital for you to understand what's happening in this moment, in this scene. Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He knows what's about to happen. He's most likely about in, in a town of Jericho, about 15 miles away, and he will enter the city of Jerusalem for the last time in a few days. And he knows what's happening, right? He knows it'll be a parade with palm branches and cries out of Hosanna, Hosanna, he saves, he saves. And he knows a couple of days after that, he'll cause an uproar in the temple and the religious leaders of those days will plot his death. He knows a few days after that, he'll share a final meal with his disciples, and he'll tell them about a new covenant that God is making with man. And he knows one of those disciples will betray him, and the next day he'll die an ugly and a gruesome death and wear the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders, and we know that three days later he'll he'll rise again. And so he knows what's coming. And in three passages, three sections of Scripture leading up to our passage today, he's going to teach kind of the same idea in a repetitive fashion. He knows his time is limited. He knows the, sh- the clock is running out on his life, right? And we're familiar with clocks right now because I've been like, loving the NCAA basketball tournament, right? I don't know if you guys enjoy this. My bracket is shot. I've got no chance at winning, okay? But I love this. I'm not even a fan of any of the teams in there, but there's something about the last two minutes of a game, that the score is close, and you know who's winning. They get to keep playing. Whoever loses, they're done for the season. And if you're a fan of those teams, you're watching and you're scooting to the edge of your seat as, as the, every pass happens in those last few moments. And you're wondering, is that shot going to go in? Will the underdog really be able to pull off the upset? And if you ask any of those players to a person, they'll tell you, they know instinctively what's happening in those last few moments is going to determine the outcome of that game. And it's going to be seared in their memory for years and years to come. And in Jesus' life, it's late in the second half. Things are getting amped up. And he's naturally prioritizing the things he thinks is really important for his disciples to know so they know how to live and how to act in this world because he won't be here much longer. And so there's no mistake, these three segments of narrative right before our passage today, right? They're all in the same topic. The first one, right? Jesus is teaching, uh, Jesus and the children. Jesus is teaching a group of people and these children come up and they interrupt as children do. And the disciples think they're doing the right thing, and they shoo these, these kids away. And Jesus says, whoa, time out. You've got to understand something. What you think is important. These, these kids are actually important. The kingdom of heaven belongs to these kids, and so you need to bring them, bring them into me. How I value things, the importance I place on things is much different than what you're thinking right now. And then next, he has an encounter with a rich young man. And this man, he can't give up his possessions in order to follow Jesus. And in the follow-up powwow with his disciples after this encounter, Peter asks this bold question where he says, Well, Jesus, hey, he didn't follow you, but we did. What's in it for us? And Jesus goes on to explain that, hey, there are rewards for following me. Uh, Sometimes they're, they're eternal. Sometimes they're not even on this earth. But I need you to know something. And he ends with this refrain that if you've you've been around church for a while, read your Bible, you know. He says, many in this world who are first are going to be last, and the last are going to be first. And then, if that wasn't enough, he tells them another parable about workers in a vineyard. And he ends that one with the same refrain, right? If you didn't hear it the first time, guys, you need to hear it again. Many who are first are going to be last, and last are going to be first. And so three times, I think he's trying to move these guys to see something they need to see. And then we get to this passage today that we're going to read. Verse 17, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and on the way he took the 12 aside, and he said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and on the third day he'll be raised to life. Now this, if you're following along Matthew's biography, is actually the third and final time that Jesus will predict his death and his resurrection. He takes his men aside one more time and he says, guys, I want you to know what's about to happen. I want your hearts prepared for what's about to happen. I'm about to be condemned, mocked, flogged, crucified. And so whatever grand notions you have of hooking your wagon to celebrity Jesus, the healer and miracle worker, you need to know it's not gonna be pretty. And these men, so attuned, all right, to the popular Jewish concepts of the glorious reigning king-like Messiah that everything he seems to mention just keeps kind of going right over their heads. They're thinking lion, king, ruler, in charge. He's thinking lamb, pay for the sins of the world, usher in a completely different kind of kingdom. Case in point, this next part of the passage And notice, don't miss this. Notice the contrast between what Jesus has been talking about, right? These four different instances, and we get to this point. Notice the contrast of what Jesus is talking about and what these disciples are concerned about. Verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. And she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. To sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my Father. So the Bible says then. And uh, then, in my mind, means then, right? So it means either right after this or shortly thereafter this. Jesus predicting his death, and it's not going to go well for him, Right? a mother comes. And regardless of what the situation was, right, whether it was these two sons putting their mother up to this because they were too afraid of Jesus to ask, or they thought, hey, maybe the little old lady will be able to talk to Jesus or sweet talk him. Or maybe it was an overreaching mother who maybe wasn't privy to all these conversations, but she's doing what mothers do, right? She's trying to make sure she can garner favor and power and opportunity for her sons or whether it was all three of them scheming somehow to get what they really wanted from Jesus, but no sooner, right? No sooner that Jesus had mentioned his death again, the two of his disciples and their mother are trying to get the positions of greatness. Imagine it this way. They're three, three, three and a half talks into this growing theme. And they think, yep, now's the right time to ask Jesus this question. So blinded, right? But not even that, they don't even, they, they don't even know what they're asking for. And Jesus even says it to them, right? Guys, I think you're missing the point. Do you even know what you're asking about? And then it gets better, right? Then this sentence, verse 24. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. There's a lot. There's a lot said in that in that little sentence there. That's a strong word, indignant. Like I don't know what the scale is on anger, but I'm assuming anger's here and, and indignation is somewhere in here. Okay? So what made these brothers so mad? There's only, I think there's only two options here. It doesn't tell us. I wish the Bible did tell us, but I think we can figure it out using, our, uh, using the context, right? The first one is that these, bro- these disciples had already learned the lesson, right? They'd already been like, hey, they're judging the brothers going, guys, come on. He talked about this, right? Remember the kids and remember the parable of the vineyards. Remember the rich young man. Remember, he just talked about his death. Don't be the slow learners, guys. Come on. Or, and the more likely because of what happens right after this, they're upset they didn't ask first. They had their eye on the same positions, the same greatness, and James and John just beat them to the punch. And so this is the point where if I was Jesus, and I know what you're thinking, right? We're really glad you're not Jesus, Robert. Okay, me too. But if I was Jesus, this is the point where I might have thrown up my hands in frustration and exasperation and said, Guys, really? How many times do we need to go over this? And that's not what Jesus does at all. Instead, he lovingly and patiently and kindly, he gathers his disciples in one more time and says, Guys, let's talk about this one more time. Verse 25. Jesus called them together and said, You know. And Jesus is addressing the whole group, and he's saying, get in here. Come on, huddle up. Let's do this one more time. It's about to get crazy here. You're about to experience a week unlike anything you've ever experienced with parades and chaos and betrayals and last meals and crucifixions and trials and even resurrections. And I'm not going to be with you much longer, and so you need to get this locked in once and for all. I imagine a mother standing in the doorway of a dorm room saying, son, daughter, you got five more minutes? There's one more thing. I, I really need you to understand this. Would you give me five minutes? And you need to get this locked in. Jesus is saying, leave no doubt right here. If you want to be great, and we all want to be great, that's inside of us, you're going to be a servant. And if you want to be first, and there's nothing more we love than winning and being first, You're going to act like a slave. Why are you going to do that? Why? Just as. Just as the Son of Man, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life away as a ransom. And so Jesus huddles these men up one more time, and he says, My disciples, my disciples are going to live lives marked by humility and self-giving in contrast to a world that's proud and self-serving and it's not that he's Jesus is not saying in this moment that it's wrong to have some kind of position of power or authority or influence but what he is saying is how you use that power and authority and influence matters to the king and he'll he'll even he'll he'll say i'm the perfect pattern to follow i'm the example and he'll give them one more really a uh, poignant um, example of this when he gathers a basin and a towel in a few days and he gets these disciples and he washes their feet and even washes the feet of the man who will betray him and he says just as just as the son of man here's some language you might have heard right this this year here at grace become like me in all of life become like me in all of life now, before we put ourselves in a position of superiority with these disciples and maybe internally say, yep, got it, check mark, I've heard this before, Robert, um, let's, let's give these guys a little bit of benefit of the doubt, right? Why'd they miss this? Why was this so hard to grasp? I think Jesus in this moment is creating a category of thinking that's brand new to their worlds, right? So foreign and so out of the box from how God and the world are supposed to work that no wonder they missed it. It's the reason he has to say it like this, right? You know You know how the world works, not so with you. This is different, let this sink in. And this is how shocking it was. Uh, The the virtue of humility in the ancient world was not something that was sought after in any way. Courage, truth, yes, but not humility. Lowliness, certainly not, right? Aristotle said that the great-souled man should never stoop to humble himself. Rome was a society that was based on um, on honor and was so status conscious. Cicero is a Roman writer. He, he wrote rank must be preserved. A Plutarch is another guy in that time period. He actually wrote a book called on praising oneself inoffensively, right? That book would sell by the way, side note, if you're writing books for the bestseller list, that one would probably sell in our day. Macquarie University is a university in Australia. They did a a fascinating study where they, and they don't have any religious affiliation, but they did a study trying to determine what were the origins of humility as a social virtue in our world. And they came away with this conclusion, right? That the modern Western fondness for humility almost certainly derives from the peculiar impact on Europe of the Judeo-Christian worldview. And what he's saying is that humility and servanthood and the idea behind it grew because of this moment in history when, when a rabbi and a teacher and a savior stands in front of his disciples and say, "You know, first or last, last first. If you want to be great, be a servant. I came not to serve, or not to be served, but to serve and to give my life away as a ransom." And Jesus is trying to connect these men back to how they were created to be. And this world was bent and broken, and they are too. And he's trying to say, guys, listen to me. Listen to me. You know. You know what it's like in this world. You know. Not so with you. Not so with you. Now, I may be off a little bit, and I think even in our current uh, cultural climate, even though we've made humility and servanthood a little more in vogue and fashionable, like, you know, through leadership books and TED Talks and and things like that, I'd still ask you to consider the reality that our world still very much works the same way it did back in Jesus' day. And that these countercultural ideas are still uh, pressing in on us as disciples of Jesus Christ Right? We're still living in a proud, self serving, egotistical generation, and self promotion is is common and maybe even rampant, right? We still live in a world, and I think you'll agree with me, we still live in a world where men and women will cut corners and scheme and do whatever they need to do to get what they want. Some of us even. We still live in a world where men and women will seek out the praise of others and they'll even they'll purposely do good, but they'll make sure you know about it on Facebook. It's funny because it's true. We still live in a world where men and women love awards and praise and seats of honor and positions of power and influence and authority, right? We still live in a world where time and time again, the powerful abuse the weak in so many ways. And so these disciples, they walked with Jesus and they missed it. And surely, surely we wouldn't be so foolish as to think we've, we've got this nailed or that we don't have work to do in this regard. Right? So let's humbly remember that we're in the same seats with these disciples. And here's how I know that, right? Here's how I know it. Some of you, you got cut off this week in traffic and there were fingers or other gestures involved, okay? Because you wanted to be first. Like Matt's, Matt's even got a great story about getting flipped off in the church parking lot after church. <laughs> like you should hear it, it's, it's amazing, okay? How dare they get in line in front of me? I've got places to go, people to see. Time is money. I know this week some of you got into a petty, petty argument with a kid, one of your children, or a coworker, or maybe even a spouse, and it wasn't one of those like important arguments, but you had to be right. And you went and Googled the answer and showed them. Right? Here, see? Some of you this week, you got impatient, flustered, perhaps even angry because someone wasn't serving you fast enough not even talking about you serving them they're serving you in some capacity and they're not doing it in a way that's to your liking or fast enough and it's got you all all flustered and they these men these disciples they lived in a world built on rank and honor and status and puffing oneself up and self-promotion and resume building and serve me and the world hasn't changed all that much and Jesus is still there gathering his people in saying listen Listen, you know how the world works. You know, but not so with you. Not so with you. And so people of grace, our call, I think, in this passage is today is to be ever, ever more these not so with you kind of people. And So how are we going to do that? What are we going to do with this passage? How can we apply this? What should we consider? I want to be better at this. Help me. In this moment I'm a little nervous before we go on because I think there's two possible responses that are going on inside your head right now. The first one is that you're saying, "Yep, give it to me Robert. I need to hear this. Jesus, please help me consider what it is that I need to grow and learn in this area." And there's some of us who are in this room going, "You know what? I should really get a copy of this message and send it to my sister <laughs> or my husband." or a co-worker, friends, would you please today be the, be the former and not the latter? Would you believe that you're in this room by God's providence today to hear this message and to consider how it might shape you? And so for the please, for the next few moments, would you please, and I'm throwing myself in there with you because most of these examples I know about because I've lived them. Would you please, consider the fact that you may be missing the point as well and need help in this regard. Because I think the reality is that six months from now, you're either going to be more like Jesus in this area of your life or you're going to be less like Jesus in this area of your life, and I don't think there's any holding serve. And so my prayer is that every one of us would, when that six-month bell rings, we'd be more and more like Jesus in this area of our life of service and humility. And so I'd like to propose for you a series of questions for you to consider. And your application today, I think, is pretty simple, although I don't think it's easy. And the first is, is that you would acknowledge, yes, this is for me. I need to hear this. Holy Spirit, open my eyes to what you want to teach me today. And the second is maybe write these questions down. Maybe instead of giving them a cursory glance, you actually spend some time this week considering them. Maybe even go so far as to grab a mentor, a close friend, a trusted person, and say, how are we doing in these regards? And so here are the questions. The first one, where are you giving your life away? Jesus said it clearly, right? I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life away. And the theme of our entire year, 2018 at Grace, has been become like Christ in all of life. And I don't think he could have put it any clearer. I came to serve, not to be served, and my followers, they'll do the same. You're going to be not so with you kind of people. And so if you're a disciple of Jesus today, where are you giving your life away? Where are you serving? Where are you willfully and joyfully, for the sake of others, in the name of Christ, serving with no chance of the favor being returned? Where's that place in your life where you're acting like a servant and it's not actually bothering you? If not, if there's something that doesn't come to mind or some things that don't come to mind, I think the Lord Jesus through his word today might be in the most loving but also straightforward way saying, how many times do I have to say this? The greatest, and it's okay to want to be great, but the greatest in God's kingdom are the people who are willing to serve in the hard places, the demanding places, the uncomfortable places, the lonely places, and for sure the unappreciated places where they're willing to spend and be spent, those those men and women are the greatest. And so you were created. I, I, I believe this. You were created by God and redeemed by Jesus Christ to serve others, and when you do that, and when you get more in line with that, you're going to find one of the greatest highs on this earth is being attuned to what Jesus is doing and being used by him in humble service to others because it's lining you more up with how you were designed, how your soul was designed to be. And so what would happen? What would happen in your life if you showed up to church with the mentality that I'm going to give and I'm not going to take? What would happen if we, if we came to a church where there was a line to serve for the toddlers? What would happen? What would happen if you did that menial task around the office for someone else and you didn't care if someone saw you? Men, what would happen instead of making the joke about the honeydew list? What if you just slowly started checking things off without fanfare or expectation of a pat on the back? What if, what if, what if you just called a local principal or a local nonprofit or a ministry area up here at church and said, I've got an hour, I'll do anything. Where can I help you? I don't know how you answer that question today of where are you giving your life away? But I think the question is, is there for us to consider. You were created by God and redeemed by Jesus Christ to serve others. And so where are you giving your life away? The second question, are you missing it? These guys, I shouldn't be surprised because I've been following Jesus long enough to know that I miss it too. But these guys, for somehow I'm like, you guys walked with Jesus. You should have gotten this, right? But it still keeps going right over their head. And so is there some area of your life where Jesus is speaking clearly to you and you're over on the, side of the, on the other side of the room scheming with your mother how to get what you really want, right? Are you missing it? Just like those disciples, is there, some, is there some place in your life where Jesus for the third or the fifth or the 50th time has made it really clear, I need you to do this. I need you to follow me in this regard. And so I don't know what those examples are for you. I thought of some for me. Like for me, it was like Jesus is telling me to serve my spouse. And all I can do is think about how they don't serve me enough. I'm missing it. Or I've, you've got some kind of habit or hang up or maybe even addiction. And you keep saying it's not that bad. I've got it under control. How many times we need to hear before you really hear? Are you ignoring clear instruction from our Lord today. Are you missing it? So where are you giving your life away? Are you missing it? And then finally, the last question that Jesus is speaking clearly to to us today, from this passage actually, can you drink this cup? And much of our thought naturally this week will lead us Um, to Resurrection Sunday, right, and the life events that have happened in Jesus' life this week as we celebrate those. And we'll celebrate the great triumph over over sin and death. And the Master is still saying to his disciples today, can you drink the cup? And, And we'll probably act like those disciples and say, oh, yeah, we could totally do it without really considering the cost. But can we? Can we drink the cup? Can, can we take those hits in, in work at work or in the marketplace where we have to say no to things, because we can't do it, because our conscience is just not allowing us to do that as we try our best to follow Jesus. Can we really give and serve and sacrifice in one area of our life, in one place over time, with no expectation of return blessings, but simply because it's what God called us to do? Can you drink the cup? Here's where I'm headed. I'm headed to a cross. I'm headed to Jerusalem. I'm headed to the greatest event mankind has ever known, being raised from the dead, to prove that I'm exactly who I said I was, the Savior, the Messiah, the King. And if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to drink this cup with me. And it may look different than you expect. It might be, there might be a lot of worldview shake-up moments following Jesus. It may cost you more than you thought originally, and there may not be a lot of worldly greatness at the end of your life, but it's worth it. There's a resurrection coming. So can you drink the cup? Can we be together, these not-so-with-you kind of people that Jesus has called us to be? And perhaps through God's good grace and the power and help of his Holy Spirit, we, both collectively as a body of believers and also individually, might become more and more these not-so-with-you kind of people who are seeking after the right things, giving our lives away as we follow the great the one, right? And the one who will, who will rise from the dead and prove that he's worthy to be followed. We all want to be great. We all do. It's a desire put into us, I think, by God. We all want to be great. But Jesus says to us today, Grace, clearly, this is what true greatness is. This is what I'm about. When he said, you know. You know how the world works. Not so with you. Not so with you. Instead. Instead. Whoever wants to become great among you, must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as, just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life away as a ransom for many. Praise God for that ransom. We'll celebrate that this week. Praise God for the resurrection coming. We'll celebrate that next week. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we, we are grateful for your word today laid out before us so, for us to consider and for us to work through so that we as your children may be able to do what you've asked us to do, which is to become like your son, Jesus Christ. You've given us clear instruction today, Father, and for that we're grateful and we're humbled. But Father, we, we also know ourselves well. We know that we're men and women capable of totally missing the point and we're capable of finding ways to not obey you. And for that, we ask for your forgiveness, and we're reminded of how kind and loving you are to your children. And so, Father, would you help us through the power of your Holy Spirit to become more and more these not-so-with-you kind of people who joyfully and gladly lay down our lives for others in glad service to our King. And we ask this boldly but also humbly because you've told us, God, that we can approach your throne with confidence because of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. And it's in his magnificent name we pray. Amen.